0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And here's a fact you may or may not know. While Washington, D.C., and we're talking the actual district itself, boasts about 600,000 people, with the surrounding suburbs in Maryland and Virginia, the population is more than 5 million. That's why our region ranks among the top 10 largest metropolitan areas in the United States. So today, we're tipping our hat to the millions of people in Montgomery, Fairfax, Arlington, Loudoun, and Prince George's County, and beyond, as we bring you some favorite stories all about suburbia. And we'll kick things off by turning the microphone over to the folks who know the suburbs best, the people who live and work there.
1: The Washington area suburbs are like cities within a city. You don't necessarily have to go down to D.C. because the suburbs offer everything
2: in its own area. They're pretty seamless when it comes to uh, D.C. and the suburbs. When you're in Silver Spring, you still think of yourself as being in D.C.
3: They have good schools, they have some nice people in them, but they tend to have terrible traffic problems and they don't have a strong sense of community. There's just a sense of we live in Washington or maybe we live in the Northern Virginia area, but I've never really felt like I lived in Fairfax as part of an identity. I get to go out in my backyard and actually enjoy a backyard, you know, have some grass, have a place for my dog to be. Traffic has
2: just gotten really tough. Can't go anywhere now in the morning or in the evening because of the rush hour, so we just stay home and come out in the middle of the day.
4: It would be really nice if it was easier to get around. It's such a nightmare. When I was just driving here, I was coming from Germantown, and I, you know, budgeted
5: myself 30 minutes to make it here. It's a two-mile drive.
6: The suburbs are still good, but you realize, you, people know us now, It's crime everywhere. No place is perfect. Suburbs, urban, it's all the same. It's all about the people.
4: I'd say it's different from place to place. You go to different neighborhoods and there, there can be drastically different environments. Very diverse, for sure.
2: We're just not city people. You know, we like to have our own home and own yard. I love to do yard work, so I have to have space.
0: Those were local residents in Bethesda and Fairfax City talking with our editorial assistant, Lauren Landau. We move now from the suburban present to the suburban past back to the era when DC's suburbs were
7: first sprouting up the very first suburb we had in Washington was in Anacostia it was called Uniontown Mount Pleasant I believe is the second one the third one was Ladroit Park Anacostia Mount Pleasant Ladroit Park definitely
0: not the names that immediately spring to mind these days when we think about the DC burbs But as Cultural Tourism D.C. chief historian Jane Freundel Levy points out, back in the late
7: 1800s, these places were considered suburban because they were built... Outside the limits then of the city. So if you can visualize downtown Washington going out to Florida Avenue, which used to be called Boundary Street, that was the original city.
0: And places like Uniontown, Mount Pleasant, and LeJoyt Park are known as streetcar suburbs because they developed in response to innovations in transportation. Beginning with streetcars... I met with Jane near the original end of the line of one of those streetcars, which used to run up to Mount Pleasant. It was pretty cold out, so we took a seat inside a sweet-smelling spot on Mount Pleasant Street, Heller's Bakery.
7: Which is one of the oldest businesses in Mount Pleasant? The oldest continuous business in Mount Pleasant. Don't mess with Mara when it's Mount Pleasant.
0: Indeed you don't, because local historian Mara Cherkasky wrote the book on Mount Pleasant. And I'm not just being figurative here. Her paperback, Mount Pleasant, was published in 2007. And as both she and Jane will tell you, Mount Pleasant began as its own little village with a horse-drawn streetcar on 14th Street. The electric streetcar came up 14th Street in
8: 1893 or so, but in the early 1900s, the city cut 16th Street through from downtown. 16th Street used to stop at Boundary Street, Florida Avenue. They cut that through up Meridian Hill. And in early 1903, the electric streetcar that came up Connecticut Avenue to Columbia Road, that was extended and that came up to here, Mount Pleasant Street and Park Road. So starting 1905, stores started popping up and apartment buildings and row houses. So that streetcar coming up Mount Pleasant Street in 1903 turned this neighborhood into what it is.
7: Right. The impact of the streetcar is the same thing that we see today with the metro. Every place where we've had a new metro station, we've had a tremendous amount of the most modern style of building, and that's what happened here in Mount Pleasant, too. But unlike metro stations, which you build them and they pretty
0: much stay, the streetcar obviously disappeared. When did that happen, and what happened here when that
5: happened?
7: The streetcar had its last run in 1962, and it was part of a very complicated set of circumstances which really had to do with the advent of the highway lobby in the 1950s where the government was giving huge amounts of money to build roads and the number of cars just burgeoned and cars and streetcars were not very compatible. Streetcars were not maneuverable, they had to be on the tracks Cars were zipping in and out. It got dangerous. It got very dense. Again, there were a lot of forces arrayed against the continuation of the streetcars and the demand to switch over to buses, which were considered more modern and more flexible forms of transportation.
0: Was there a clear point when Mount Pleasant stopped being considered a suburb and and people really thought of it as part of the city?
7: Shall we pick a year, Mara? (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that what you need to remember is that we have generational changes in how we define a suburb. So what was a suburb, as in Mount Pleasant, that lasted really only a short amount of time until other suburbs developed. So this was a suburb It pretty quickly took on urban forms in terms of the housing and the fact that they were row houses and it was fairly dense in apartment buildings. So the next rank of suburb is a little bit farther out from Mount Pleasant. So if you can visualize going north from here, and especially going up Connecticut Avenue, you get into a different style of suburb. And obviously the D.C. suburbs kept expanding outward and outward, and and now
0: they're an essential part of what this region is. Why do you think the idea, the concept
7: of the suburb is such an enduring thing? The reason we have suburbs is because we had cities. We had cities that were chock-a-block with industry and commerce and sometimes chickens and pigs in the streets, and the idea that you didn't want to mix that kind of activity with where you lived is sort of the, the foundation of the suburban style and the suburban thought. And when you consider the reasons that suburbs developed to begin with, a lot of those reasons still pertain for people. There are still a lot of people who just want to have their house, that's their castle. They want to have land around them that belongs to them, and they don't want to have to look out the kitchen window. And as somebody said the other day, be able to read the newspaper of the guy sitting in the kitchen next door. (laughs) There will always be people who look at it that way. Mara,
0: Jane, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with me today here in Mount Pleasant. Our pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you. That was writer and historian Mara Cherkasky and Cultural Tourism DC Chief Historian Jane Freundel Levy. To see photos of the old Mount Pleasant streetcar, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Another local community that owes its origins to a kind of train line is Kensington, Maryland. It was one of the first suburban communities to emerge after the Civil War. And as with many of our suburbs, its growth was directly related to the role of the military in our region. Jessica Gould spoke with local author and historian Paul Dixon about the connection between military might and the spread of suburbia.
3: We're in the heart of Kensington, Maryland, and we're sitting in front of a spacious, beautiful Victorian mansion, which was the home of a man named Brainerd Warner, who was actually the founder of Kensington, Maryland in the 1870s, 1880s. Brainerd Warner was a young man, came here from Pennsylvania when he was 15 years old, when the Civil War broke out, which was a period of huge expansion for the city of Washington because troops came in from all over the country to populate the city and to defend the city. Brainerd Warner enlisted as a private in the army, but then they realized he was sort of a financial genius, so they put him in charge of some of the economy of the war. After the war, he decided he was gonna become a financier and a builder of suburbs. The B and O had built the Metropolitan Branch that enabled people to start using these suburbs, Chevy Chase, Kensington, Garrett Park, as places to live.
4: So I think we tend to think of suburbanization as a World War II phenomenon, a post-World War II phenomenon, but it actually started way before that.
3: It actually starts in the Civil War, but I think what happened here in World War I was fascinating. Many, many people had to come here to run the war. So after World War I, Arlington, which has been booming because of the war workers, they decide to stay. So what does Arlington do? Arlington becomes, right after World War I, the fastest growing county in the country. And how do they support that? They build sewers. They have countywide water supply. They have a health system. They have a school system you needed libraries, you needed newspapers, you needed all this this infrastructure to support them.
4: So, how did World War II affect the growth of this area?
3: There was a slogan, every trigger, meaning person out there on the front lines with a gun, needed 25 typewriters to support that person. And then at the end of the war comes the GI bill and supported housing. So, so there's this huge huge build up from 1940 to 50. D.C. goes up about 40%. The population grows. But boy, the real growth is in the suburbs. The suburbs are booming. Alexandria goes up in that same period 84%. P.G. County goes up 117%. Arlington goes up 130%. Montgomery County goes up 95.9%.
4: Why did people move from the city to the suburbs during these various periods?
3: Housing was expensive. It was, it was in short supply. During the war, there was huge housing shortages. Even a place where I live, in Garrett Park, these little houses called Chevy houses that were built by veterans after World War I, you could buy the house for a couple hundred dollars down, and when you bought the house, you had the option of paying also in your monthly payment for a Chevrolet automobile.
4: Paul Dixon, tell me a little bit about how the more recent conflicts have influenced the suburbs of Washington.
3: Once you want to run a huge military... You need a nerve center. You need a physicality. You need a place where the top generals or the top admirals or the top whoever can can sit down in a meeting room and decide what's going to happen tomorrow. So the military was here right from the War of 1812 when the city was attacked, when the British burned Washington. Any major conflict or major change, you're going to see an increase in the size of Washington, D.C. Even a negative event like 9-11 brought more people here.
0: Paul Dixon is co-author of On This Spot, pinpointing the past in Washington, D.C. He spoke with WAMU's Jessica Gould. And if you have thoughts you'd like to share about the military's impact on Washington's suburbs, we want to hear from you. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org. Time for a quick break, but when we get back, helping the needy in one of Washington's wealthiest suburbs.
6: I feel in my position, I give them basic needs. And the basic needs is shelter, food, and water. It's coming
0: your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5.
4: WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: And welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're taking an audio stroll through one of our favorite shows from earlier this year, Suburbia. If you've traveled around D.C. suburbs, you know they can be incredibly diverse in terms of ethnicity, culture, nationality, language. In fact, more than a million immigrants dwell in the Washington metropolitan region. That means more than one in five of us hail from outside the United States. When it comes to foreign-born residents, the fastest-growing suburban area is Loudoun County, Virginia. At the turn of the 21st century, Loudoun's immigrant population was roughly 20,000. A decade later, it was 70. And one immigrant group whose numbers have been skyrocketing in the county is the Indian community. Back in 2000, approximately 1,200 Indian people called Loudoun County home. By 2010, that number had multiplied tenfold to 12,000. So what is it about Loudoun County that's attracting so many new Indian inhabitants? Well, what better way to find out than to travel up there? Our first stop, the home of Bratati Saha, an Indian immigrant who's been living with her husband and son in Ashburn, Virginia, since 2007. Saha runs Arpan Dance Academy out of a spacious studio in her basement. This morning, she's teaching about a dozen women and girls the traditional Indian dance form, katak. Katak is a rhythmic barefoot dance full of elaborate footwork and spins. And you hear that jingling? That's the sound of guru. Long strands of bells Katak dancers wrap around their ankles. The more experienced you are, the more bells you get to wear. According to your dance level, you can use it more. So, right, my guru, each feet, I have 175 bells. Yeah. 175? On, on, on one side. One side. One leg. I have to get that. Saha teaches several dozen pupils from many cultural backgrounds, but the majority of her students are Indian, like the women and girls in attendance this morning. The girls range from third to sixth grade, and if you ask them what they like best about Katak... What would you say is your favorite thing about dance? Most of them, like fourth grader Shreya, say it's the way Katak connects them to Indian history and traditions.
9: This dance can help me do it at school or at the other performances, like at the festivals. So we get to show everyone our culture.
0: And that opportunity to show off the Indian culture is important to the grown-ups too, like Shree, who's been learning Katak for about a year now.
4: For the last five years that we've moved here, we, my God, yes, we do see a lot of Indian culture, a lot of Indian lot of Indian food. You know, I have uh, American friends that love Indian food, and they want to go out and eat Indian food, so I'm always taking them out.
0: But because Loudoun County's Indian community is so sizable, the beauty is they don't just get to show their culture to others, says fellow student Devika. They get to share it, with one another
2: I think there are a lot of Indians, so that drives them to come to this area because they have somebody then <laughs> they are comfortable I mean they know already from their own country
0: it's what's known as chain immigration and Devika says when these individuals and families arrive in a place like Loudon County, they find affordable homes, quality schools, and jobs
2: There are more tech uh, companies around here, so that's one of the main reasons why all the people who are in IT are moving in here so I am in IT, so there were opportunities.
0: <laughs> in fact, you'll find one of the nation's highest concentrations of high-tech firms in Loudoun. It is, after all, home to the Dulles Technology Corridor, a.k.a. the Netflix, a.k.a. The
10: Silicon Valley of the East Coast.
0: And while Kumar Ayur isn't part of the area's high-tech industry, as owner of Rangoli Indian Restaurant, he's done pretty well for himself in the county.
11: I've had this restaurant for six years now. In these six years, we've been rated the best Indian restaurant in entire Northern Virginia, We've been in the top 50 best bargain restaurants of entire D.C. metro area. We've won the best retail business of the year award from the Loudoun Chamber of Commerce.
0: The list goes on and on. And as an entrepreneur, Ayur says Loudoun County is an ideal environment for what he calls...
10: The entrepreneurial blood in Indians to, you know, open businesses, Uh, not just the small
11: hotels and restaurants and convenience stores and gas stations... But there are so many entrepreneurs uh, starting their dot-com companies and and being successful. And uh, then they they bring in their kith and kin, and it just tends to grow.
0: So it's no wonder 15% of the national capital region's Indian population resides in Loudoun County. And after years of moving around the country, Joshi, Shreya's mother, says she and her family are here to stay. We have been moving every two and a half years
4: in this country. I was in Texas, Louisiana, California, and Delaware, but it feels really great to be in this area. It's welcoming, which assures us, okay, we are not like someone stranger. We belong here now, our kids belong here.
0: As for her own kid, Joshi says she's proud of how Shreya is thriving. At the same time, she's learning new things
2: from here and she's contributing to the society. So that's the view that she has developed. I think that's a very healthy view of how immigrants would look at it when they come here and try to settle
0: here. And come here and settle, they have, by the thousands upon thousands, helping to transform this formerly rural corner of northern Virginia into a vibrant suburb with more than a hint of Indian flavor. If you came to the Washington region from another part of the world in recent years, we want to know what drew you here. Tell us your story by sending an email to metro at wamu.org. We'll stay in Northern Virginia for the time being and head southeast to Falls Church. Falls Church is often known as one of the wealthiest jurisdictions in the country. But despite a median income of more than $113,000 a year, there are still those here who are struggling to get by. In a recent edition of D.C. Gigs, Mark Adams spoke with Lance Flowers, who lends a big helping hand to the city's homeless residents.
6: Uh, my name is Lance Flowers. I work for New Hope Housing. I'm a program coordinator for the Falls Church Homeless Shelter. <laughs> yeah. How you doing, Kevin? It's really a satisfaction because I believe every person, every individual needs the basic needs. And I feel in my position, I give them, them basic needs. And the basic needs is something that consists of shelter, food, and water. And what we do here is provide that. How <laughs> so was the meal tonight, fellas? Awesome. Right. Right. Even though uh, Fairfax and Falls Church is one of the wealthiest cities, the support from the city and from the community are very, very high. The Falls Church um, Homeless Shelter gets so many donations, um, basically 75% of the running of the shelter comes from private organizations around Falls Church area. So even though it's one of the richest cities, I think people that are less fortunate around here um, receive a lot more services than the average person in D.C. Once you come in to the shelter, you have a bed to sleep on. You also have access to a TV.
11: You cost me 50 bucks. You run like a girl. Come on.
6: You have access to our computers. How's the job first come along then? Oh, it's pretty good. Good, good. Okay, let me know if you need help with anything. Okay. One of the volunteers come in, and she's our volunteer coordinator, and she loves to play um, board games. So we all got together, and we decided to play Monopoly. And we just had a ball. I think what it did was take the the residents' mind off the situation they was in. It took my mind off the daily operation of the, the, not totally, but just for that time, you know. And we just had fun. We was just I lost, but uh, (laughs) I didn't get boardwalk or park place. But that was one of the memorable moments. Today Friday, so uh, today's late night. So, (laughs) what keeps me going in this field is knowing that. I am making a difference in somebody's life. Knowing that somebody is not out there without shelter, without food, without water. That's what drives me to not turn a blind eye to that. If I can't find employment or housing or the goals that they set, at least I can supply them basic needs um, in this time where it's very cold outside.
0: That was Lance Flowers talking with producer Mark Adams. <laughs> And if you have a distinctively D.C. gig you think we should highlight, let us know. Send an email to metro at WANU.org or visit us on Facebook. Just head to facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. Everybody's working
6: for the weekend.
8: Everybody wants a new
0: Speaking of shelter, we turn now to a story about the homes of suburbia. Now, it sort of goes without saying that the big suburban house on a rolling green lawn holds a special place in the American psyche. But the thing is, big homes aren't always synonymous with suburbia. In the community of Greenbelt, Maryland, many of the homes are much different from what we've come to expect of the Burbs. Greenbelt began as a kind of experiment in suburban living. It was founded as part of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. And Emily Friedman paid a visit to see whether the Greenbelt experiment is still working 75 years
5: down the road. From the very beginning, Greenbelt was unique. Unlike most small towns, Greenbelt did not evolve from a town square. It was planned. Every bit of it was preconceived. This is Megan Searing-Young. She runs the Greenbelt Museum. She says everything about Greenbelt was geared toward making the residents as happy and healthy as possible. There were playgrounds, tennis courts, a pool, which in the 1930s was pretty fancy, and a system of sidewalks that made it possible to walk just about anywhere you wanted to go. Greenbelt was quite luxurious. There were over 5,000 applicants for the approximately 888 homes that were first built. There was an intensive selection process. The selection committee was looking for young families. Couples had what they called honeymoon cottages, around 400 square feet, Families of five could rent a three-bedroom house. No one had more or less than they needed. In fact, if you had another kid, you had to move to a bigger house.
2: All right, this is a a, a three-bedroom brick home.
5: Barbara Havkos raised her four kids in this house. She's lived here for 50 years.
2: This is one of the originals built in 1937. It won't take long to tour, right? <laughs> Go ahead first. okay?
5: Around 1,100 square feet, hers is one of the larger homes in historic Greenbelt. In a bedroom, she points out one of the home's biggest challenges, storage.
2: And this is the size of the closet that the two people shared. Right.
5: There's one bathroom in the house, just
2: one. I actually kept a schedule (laughs) for showers and and things because um, you had to with one bathroom.
5: Even after 50 years, Havka says she still marvels at how carefully designed the house is.
2: I think that the architects made complete use of every square inch of this house to make it as livable as possible, even though the square footage is is probably half the size of today's homes or less.
5: The federal government sold Greenbelt in 1952 to a group of veterans. The veterans formed a co-op, and eventually all the homeowners became the owners of Greenbelt. It's still a co-op today. Lucy Dirksen bought a historic home in Greenbelt about 10 years ago. It was just just the right amount of space, and it was my husband, myself, and my son. As their family grew, it became less and less comfortable.
4: When we're in such a tight space, we're all on top of each other. There's no place to kind of, you know, separate and ground oneself and then come back.
5: They bought a house in one of Greenbelt's newer developments. It's a five-story split with three bedrooms, two art studios, a back porch— and a giant playroom for her kids. There is
4: one other place. You're gonna have to like hold your breath.
5: (laughs) This is our basement. (laughs) Dirksen says she loves her house, though she can't imagine going even one square foot bigger.
4: I honestly believe that the more we've acquired, the more work it's been. And I don't really need to have more work.
5: (laughs) While Lucy's house isn't enormous, it is a more typical suburban home. And her feelings about needing a large home are also pretty typical. That's according to the CEO of the Urban Land Institute, Patrick Phillips.
10: We're seeing uh, the McMansion trend really fade. In many ways, we are coming back to what we saw, the principles uh, being developed at Greenbelt. Mixed use, more compact development, variety in the housing types, a more walkable environment.
5: When Greenbelt was first built, Phillips points out, the idea was to be a model for private home builders and inspire them to create thought-out, livable communities. But when soldiers returned from war in the late 40s, they needed places to live fast.
10: So in some ways, we lowered our standards.
5: Phillips says the average size of an American home is starting to shrink just by a little.
10: But this is America, and big houses are still a symbol of achievement and success.
5: In the face of that cultural norm, says museum curator Megan Searing-Young, thousands of people choose to live in the modest homes of historic Greenbelt, 75 years and counting. I think there's a certain level of awareness about Greenbelt's origins and that it, it was this experiment in a new way of living, and people are still interested in that experiment. I'm Emily Friedman.
0: After the break, trekking to the farthest reaches of the suburban frontier. This was recently purchased by a fellow from D.C. who
8: commutes the house over here to my right. Again, our two fellows from the D.C. metro area. Across the street, she retired from the IRS. It's just ahead on Metro
0: Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Today we're all about the burbs with stories focusing on the complex and ever-changing communities that make up the Washington suburbs. Of course, as we heard earlier in the show, defining a suburban community can be trickier than you think. We kick things off today by swinging by Mount Pleasant, which used to be considered a suburb but is, of course, now part of the city proper – For this next story, we go way, way outside the city to a place that doesn't feel very suburban, but it's increasingly being swallowed up into the greater Washington region. Tara Boyle takes us on this road trip to Martinsburg, West Virginia.
9: Walking into Patterson's pharmacy on a Friday morning is like entering the set of a Hollywood movie, a movie about small-town America.
10: We have homemade sandwiches here. Any type of salad you want, egg salad, chicken salad, tuna fish, cheese salad, combination sandwiches.
9: The longtime business in downtown Martinsburg has an old-fashioned soda fountain with stools for the morning coffee crowd and an antique phone booth in the back.
10: And it still works, believe it or not.
9: That's George Karros, the 80-year-old owner of Patterson's. He's also the mayor of Martinsburg, and he knows how to sell his community.
10: The amenities are all here. It's a small-town location. The real estate taxes are extremely low. The services are excellent. They have an excellent uh, city uh, fire department, EMT services.
9: It's a community with a more languid pace, a community where people still know each other by first name. And that elusive quality, says realtor Carolyn Snyder, is why many Washingtonians want to live here.
8: We're here on Westburg Street, and we're two or three blocks from downtown Martinsburg. It's a historic district.
9: We're standing outside the offices of Snyder's firm as she points out the neighborhood's Victorian homes, many of which have been bought up by Washingtonians.
8: This was recently purchased by a fellow from D.C. who commutes. The house over here to my right, again, are two fellows from the D.C. metro area. Across the street, she retired
9: from the IRS. Snyder says the burst of the housing bubble has hurt the local market, but it hasn't killed it. That's because there are all sorts of historic homes for sale here. And to prove that point, we're off to visit a place called Aspen Hall. Hi, Charlie. How
8: are you? Welcome to Aspen Hall.
9: Charlie Connolly owns Aspen Hall, a mansion that he runs as something of an inn where he rents rooms by the month.
3: It's a total of 6,500 square feet now with about 22 rooms. The oldest part, which is through that door over there, which is now my kitchen, was built in 1745.
9: George Washington attended a wedding here on May 14, 1761. And speaking of Washington, the main entryway of this house is bigger than the Grand Hall at Mount Vernon.
3: So it's one of the finest Georgian period homes in in the northern Shenandoah Valley.
9: The asking price? 599000 Not exactly chump change, but way more house than you'd get for the same price closer to the district. And Carolyn Snyder says many houses on the market here are cheaper than this one. You can get anything from 30000 which is surprising, all the way up to you know,
8: $200,000, $250,000, $300,000.
9: But there is, of course, a catch. If you're planning to commute from this place to Washington every day, you'd better like getting up before dawn. I'm going to have to give you a call back
0: on Tuesday if that's at all possible. And I look Jan Logan is
9: a community use scheduler at Montgomery College. And I book rooms for special
0: events, department meetings, anything other than course scheduling.
9: We're here in her quiet Rockville office, which is about 70 miles from her home in Hedgesville, West Virginia. She commutes between the two locales every day and says sometimes that drive can be pretty brutal. I like to leave the house at 530. That's 530 a.m., On a good day, she can make it to Rockville in fewer than two hours. But on a bad day?
0: I have gotten into work as late as 10 o'clock.
9: And she's hardly the only one making this sort of super commute. Officials in Berkeley County, West Virginia, which includes Martinsburg and Hedgesville, say more than 12 percent of residents work in the Washington suburbs. That statistic doesn't even include workers who hoof it all the way into the city. So why put yourself through this trek every day? Logan's been doing the back and forth since 1995, and she says the time lost on the road is worth it.
0: We're back in a secluded little part of heaven.
4: I like <laughs> to refer to it as it's really lovely back there. It's just a different kind of life up there. It's a lot slower, and we've really enjoyed it, so
9: we made the move. And while many scholars predict the burst of the housing bubble will decrease this sort of supercommuting, back in Martinsburg, Mayor George Karros isn't so sure. This community, he says, is changing.
10: We still know people. You can see it at the Soda Fountain there. They, they've been there for since you and I have started this interview. Uh, we, we still have that, that so-called homebrew mentality at times, but, uh, yeah, we have changed.
9: Changed, he says, and become more suburban, even if the big city that's feeding this suburban transformation is far, far away. I'm Tara Boyle. <music> ¶¶
0: in the far outer reaches of the Washington suburbs? We'd like to hear why you choose to live where you do. Just send a note to Metro at WAMU.org. We'll come a bit closer to the district now, to a spot not far from the Woodrow Wilson Memorial Bridge. It's a place called Dyke Marsh, and it's one of the few marshes of its kind left along this stretch of the Potomac. But the National Park Service says the site is disappearing. Fast. Environment reporter Sabree Beneshore paid a visit to find out why.
11: A 20-minute drive from the busy streets of the district, it is a different universe.
2: This surface here is extremely slippery. You can go right on your butt and into the water. Ned Stone
11: is. Uh, he's about to.
2: Whoa, whoa! What did I shit. tell you?
11: Fall into you the didn't
2: mud. I did. It.
11: Okay, Stone yeah. is vice president of Friends of Dyke Marsh, which is where we are, and Glinda Booth is president. They're taking a canoe out into the 50 acres of marsh.
4: Where are you going to take us, Ned?
11: Well, the pair glides up a gut, a sinuous stretch of open water through a sea of reeds. Looking down through the water, a forest of lily-like buds is waiting to burst from the surface.
4: It's called spatter Dog. It has a, a yellow golf ball-sized flower. It's a beautiful in the summer.
11: The marsh gets its name from the dikes farmers built to try and convert this marsh into farmland. It didn't work, but other builders have been busy here.
9: On your right, you'll see the beaver lodge, just behind those reeds, that big pile of sticks and stuff, right there. I'm not going to go any further in here because there's not enough depth. Glenda, I'm going to
4: reverse direction. Look at the great blue heron. See the long skinny neck the long beak? It's almost, it, to me. It looks like a prehistoric bird. In Jack Marsh, 300 species of plants, 6,000 arthropods, 38 species of fish, 16 reptiles, 14 amphibians, and over 200 species of birds. See that osprey? Nice
11: he has like a sunfish in his.
4: Large. You just go up on that limb and eat it. In
11: 1947, author Lewis Hale described this place as the nearest thing to primeval wilderness in the immediate vicinity of the city. But 65 years later, the city has moved in.
4: There's the beltway. Lovely, huh?
11: <laughs> Cars on the Wilson Bridge rumble in the distance. Planes rumble from above.
4: We have a real trash problem here, especially after storms, because all the trash comes from the north ends up settling. You can see bottles. See those plastic bottles? Mm. And we used to have a refrigerator right over there.
11: (laughs) A whole refrigerator that washed down the river?
4: Well, I don't know how it got there, but there was a refrigerator.
11: But there are more troubling signs along the marsh's edge.
2: This tree fell over. The root ball is just sitting there as we go down here. With this next group of trees, you will see how the river is eroding their bases. And you can easily predict that they too. We'll come down.
11: This whole place is disappearing. Back on shore is Ron Litwin. He's a researcher with the U.S. Geological Survey.
2: The current estimate for shoreward erosion is probably six to eight feet a year. Since 2002 to the present, it's probably on the order of about an acre and a half a year.
11: More than a football field's worth of marsh is swept away every year, tree by tree, reed by reed.
2: And the entire marsh itself that is left is now about 53 acres, roughly, out of an original 180 acres.
11: He says that is because the equilibrium between sediment, vegetation, and currents has been fundamentally disrupted.
2: Back in the early 1940s, uh, there was a lot of uh, metropolitan building going on, and so they were dredging sand and gravel out of this area to use for concrete.
11: The dredging stopped in 1972, but it completely mined out shallows and a peninsula to the south that protected the marsh from storm surges. The site is now exposed to the full force of the river and hurricanes and storms. Soon, it will be gone entirely.
10: This National Park Service site has a projected lifespan of about 40 years.
11: Brent Sturry is with the National Park Service. So what we have to do
10: is and we know that it is feasible, is to restore this marsh.
11: The Park Service is coming up with ideas and cost estimates for what it would take to rebuild the peninsula that sheltered this place. Out in the marsh, Glinda Booth and Ned Stone are paddling.
4: You know, it's just so, it is just so peaceful. It's almost uh, s- spiritual for me, a spiritual experience.
11: This marsh is one of the last of its kind on this stretch of the Potomac. Without human intervention, it will be transformed into a memory. I'm Sabrie Beneshore.
0: Sabri's story was informed by sources in WAMU's Public Insight Network. It's a way for people to share stories and input with us. You can learn more at metroconnection.org slash pin. now we turn to a seemingly urban concept that could very well go suburban. Very suburban. By most accounts, capital bike share has been wildly popular in D.C. and Arlington. And now, leaders in Columbia, Maryland, and surrounding Howard County are weighing whether a bike share program could work in their community. And that's the topic of our regular transportation segment from A to B. (laughs) Jonathan Wilson headed up to Howard County to find out more.
1: If you're looking for a place with a lively or even quaint downtown, Columbia, Maryland may leave a little to be desired. Here's how the Columbia Association's Director of Community Planning, Jane Demner, describes the center of town.
7: Well, the downtown today features a very large mall in the middle of it. It isn't a traditional downtown with a main street.
1: But the sprawling retail complex and the expanse of parking lots surrounding it haven't stopped Columbia from regularly being listed as one of the very best places to live in the country. The 100,000 or so residents here have access to some of the best public schools in the nation. Foreclosure and jobless rates are impressively low. And yes, there's a major plan to make downtown Columbia into something other than a consumer's paradise.
7: Downtown is going to redevelop and that will bring new vitality, more um, housing units downtown uh, and a more walkable downtown. So that's in the future for us.
1: Bike sharing could be a part of that future as well. Columbia and Howard County have teamed up to apply for grant money to fund a feasibility study on such a program. And already there are reasons to believe that if bike sharing is feasible in a suburban environment at all, Columbia would be the place. Turn into any of the residential streets in Columbia and it's not long before you see some of the paved trails that snake through the neighborhoods. Demner says the trails were created as a selling point when this planned community was conceived by developer Jim Rouse more than 40 years ago.
7: We have ninety. 95- Four miles of pathways that are separated from our roadway. Major cities, you know, don't have that many. Washington does not have that many pathways.
1: I'm walking on one of Columbia's paved pathways next to Wild Lake. Wild Lake is one of three main man-made lakes in the area. It is picturesque, and the surface of the path is pretty perfect for biking. But there are small challenges a bike share program might face here. The hill that I'm on right now, and it's not the only one, would be pretty difficult for some people to summit on a bicycle. And in terms of signage, there really is no signage telling you where all these different paths lead. Even some locals say it's easy to lose your way. 17-year-old Anthony Reese runs cross-country for Wild Lake High School. For the people who are here, you know, if you know the area, it's a lot easier. It kind of, it's in your head, a mental map of where everything is. But I know as a freshman doing cross-country, I got lost all the time. And the paths are only part of the story. Howard County Council Chair Mary Kay Sigety says the county, which is in charge of road improvements, will have to invest in better on-road bike lanes to make bike sharing work as a real mode of transit.
4: Columbia was designed
7: as a place for people to walk and to bike. And if you go on our bike trails, you can go all sorts of wonderful places, but you can't necessarily get from here to there.
1: Luckily for Columbia, Jennifer Toole, one of the nation's foremost experts on cycling infrastructure, just happens to be a Columbia resident. Toole is the CEO of Tool Design Group, a company that helps cities across the country design better bike lanes. I
5: live in Hickory Ridge and moved here about 15 years ago.
1: Tool says some of the goals of a suburban bike-sharing program have to be different from those of an urban system. Promoting a healthy lifestyle, reducing parking problems, those are realistic goals. But having a major impact on air pollution isn't, at least in a town of fewer than 100,000 people. She also points out that a bike-sharing program doesn't have to be big to be successful.
5: When you look at some of the smaller systems around the country, um, some of them have as few as two stations and, you know,
1: and only 20 bikes. She won't guarantee that bike sharing will work in Colombia, but she says it's way too early for anyone to say it can only succeed in densely populated areas.
5: The thing to remember is that bike share is a very new thing, even in the places in the country where it's successful. It's really a movement that's
1: that's only a few years old. So is bike sharing just a youthful indiscretion or a movement that can grow up and move out to the suburbs? Maybe Columbia will soon provide the answer. I'm Jonathan Wilson. To
0: check out photos of Columbia's paved pathways and for a link to an interactive map of all those trails Jonathan was mentioning, head to our website, metroconnection.org. We end today's show with our weekly trip around the region. On this edition of Door to Door, we visit Elkridge, Maryland, and Hillbrook in Northeast D.C.
12: My name is Dennis Chestnut. I'm a lifetime resident of Washington, D.C., and a lifelong resident of Ward 7 here east of the river. I've been living here now 63 years. I'm living now in the same home that I grew up in. The area where Hillbrook is located was referred to as Central Northeast. We called Hillbrook all kind of things in our years growing up over here in the neighborhood. It just was not really identifiable. To the west, you have 295, Nanny Helen Burroughs Avenue on the north, 47th Street on the east, and Benning Road on the south. It's always been a very vibrant commercial corridor. It was even more vibrant when I was younger. Right at the intersection of Minnesota Avenue and Benning Road, it is extremely busy all of the time. It's a major interchange, a short distance from one of the first metro stations in the city. There's so much green space and parkland in this area because of the Civil War defenses of Washington. And this eastern area was very important because of the river. I believe this is one of the best kept secrets in D.C. I'm glad I stayed and excited about what I see happening and forward to you know some of the development that's underway, seeing it completed. My name is Daniel Wecker.
2: I'm the executive chef and owner of the Elkridge Furnace Inn, and I live in Elkridge, Maryland. I'm 53 years old. Elkridge is located midway between Baltimore and Washington. The name Elkridge comes from the early colonists being here. This area used to be covered with herds of elk. Elk Elkridge Landing was the largest seaport north of Annapolis in colonial times, and the ships used to come here from Great Britain. And on the north side of the river, the ships used to come here to get hogsheads of tobacco down Rolling Road, which ended here in Elkridge. We have a lot of wild areas, and we have a lot of wildlife, and it's absolutely marvelous to go out behind my business here and see kingfishers and bald eagles and beaver and lots of different things that I'm able to enjoy. Elkridge has changed dramatically in the last 23 years since I've been here. It really has grown up as a community from something that was more industrial to a little more cosmopolitan in terms of its role as a suburb. There's been a lot of new housing, a lot of new families. The schools have improved. The community has, I think, found a new sense of itself and there's a lot of pride in the Elkridge community.
0: We heard from Dennis Chestnut in Hillbrook and Dan Wecker in Elkridge. Your neighborhood can be a part of door-to-door, too. Just send an email to metro at wame.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Sabree Ashour, Emily Friedman, Jessica Gould, Jonathan Wilson, and Tara Boyle, along with producer Mark Adams. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Raffaella Benin. Johnna McCone, Lauren Landau, and Raffaella Benin produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our Door to Door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, MetroConnection.org. Just click on a story for info on its accompanying song. Also on MetroConnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, just click the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear past shows, go to the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we bring you our favorite Metro Connection stories about the great outdoors from abandoned quarries in Maryland to spelunking in Virginia to global soccer in an undisclosed location.
8: We never know what's going to happen, whether there's going to be a great game, bad game, whether we're going to have a love fest afterwards or whether we have to have a pasta peace pipe around.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.